circulating. If it feels strangely warm, it's probably because it is here. So just came out of the, uh, out of the press here. So uh, hopefully it uh, helps you walk along here. I'm going to attempt as best I can to sort of fill in a chapter of this series that you're ongoing. I, I forget what it's called, Man and, Man and Women and God's Plan or something. I can't remember the title of the, uh, of the series, but uh, we're doing our best to sort of fill in a chapter of that. And I had written an, a, a pamphlet, a little booklet here, on the idea of premarital sex, uh, which seems to fit in with the... Uh, with the uh, theme here, I don't know if it was one of the chapters that he was planning to do, uh, your, your pastor, uh, but uh, it, it works, and so we'll, we'll be trying to do that. The reason I wrote that pamphlet, and you can actually pick it up on Amazon if you really want to, um, the reason I, I wrote that, first as a journal article and then got published as this little pamphlet here, is because I was in a conversation with one of our seminary students one day, and uh, he told me he was about to get married. He said he had been, he had been chased, he had been very careful, uh, he, had, he had done nothing untoward uh, with his fiancée, but he told me, I don't, I, I don't, I've never seen an argument against premarital sex. And I said, really? I mean, he's, here's a guy who was raised in a Christian home, went to a Christian college, He's several years into seminary, and he has never seen an argument uh, that, uh, that says premarital sex is wrong. And so I, 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 I offered him a couple of passages that I thought might be helpful here, and then I started looking to see, okay, what, what can I hand him? What article, what book, or what? And, and the fact is, it's very difficult to find anything. Um, there are some treatments uh, but they run one of two directions. Uh, one is uh, those that are written from a very utilitarian point of view. Okay, so uh, if you have premarital sex, you could have STDs, you could have uh, unplanned pregnancies, you could end up with uh, unwed moms with children, and uh, statistically speaking, they don't tend to thrive as well in, in our society, and so you, could, you can list a number of utilitarian or practical reasons why it might be a bad idea. But the thing is, if you, if you live by those rules, you're going to die by those rules too, because uh, what's, what's the solution? Well, the solution is if we can take care of all of those practical issues, then it's okay, right? And, and you end up with a lot of people, even Christians, in that boat, right? Okay, we've taken care of the Practical problems, got a pill, take it either before or after. We can take this pill and we can solve the practical problems. And so therefore, it must be ethically okay at this point. Well, if you're going to live by those rules, you're going to die by them too. Um, and so most, if, you, if Christian treatments of this, at least try and bring in some scriptures, bring them to bear. But unfortunately, the two passages that probably show up more than any other are not very specific. I, I think they work. I, I think they actually do uh, push against premarital sex, but they're not very specific. Like, for instance, 
Genesis 1 and 2, with the creation of Adam and Eve, you have one man, one woman, one lifetime, and children that emerge from that. That seems to be the pattern, that seems to be the plan, but there is actually no specific statement here that it's wrong to engage in premarital or extramarital sex. It just, it just doesn't say, okay? The other is to make appeals to what Jesus says in the Gospels about pornea, okay? So often translated fornication or sexual sin. It's a sort of a broad category of sexual sins, and I think it probably does include premarital sex in its scope, but it's a very broad term, and there's a lot of disagreement as to the, the specific definition of that term. And so both of those passages, which probably show up more than any other, are not particularly precise. And that's the gold standard, right, for, 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 a, for a believer, is to be able to find some scriptures that deal specifically with that issue, right? That, that's, that's the goal. Um, and uh, I, I start here by talking about the two different ethical standards, utility or consequence, and then divine command. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into ethics here, but there's, there's basically two major approaches to ethics and I know I've got some people in here who know a lot more about ethics than I do who could say, well, there's a lot more than two. There are. But there's two basic approaches. One is called deontology, which means we do something because someone in authority says we must. Okay? So, for fact, the word deo means to ought. Okay? I must. Why must I? Because someone tells me to. Okay? There's also utilitarian approaches to ethics that says, I do X or Y or Z because of the consequences or the ends of, this, of, of this, this action. And so therefore, I make all of my decisions based on what, this will, what will happen if I do this. Okay? So those are basically the two approaches to ethics. There's a lot of, you could fill in the gaps with a lot of stuff here, but those are the two basic approaches. And if you're a parent, right, some of you are, and if you're a kid, right, you know that the best way to handle this problem if, if, you, if you're growing up in a, in a home is to have a combination of those two, right? You know, yeah, we know that the parent has the absolute authority to say, you must do this because I say so, right? At the same time, you usually get a little bit further if you can say, do this because I say so, because this will be the consequence if you don't do it, or this will be the consequence if you do. And so you, so you, you add utilitarian elements uh, to, the, to, the, to the equation. And in fact, uh, in Scripture, there seems to be an expectation that if there are not specific rules, you actually can sort of expand from them to, to make utilitarian decisions. Sometimes the, what we do is based on utility in the Bible, right? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What's the context of that? Well, the context here is eating and drinking, eating, eating meat especially, that has been sacrificed to idols in the idol temple, okay? And so the question is going to be asked, should I eat or should I drink? And perhaps naively you might say, 
doesn't matter. You can eat, you can drink, it doesn't matter. Eating and drinking are neutral. Well, no, they're not, because some eating and some drinking is done to the glory of God, and some eating and some drinking are not done to the glory of God, okay? And so, the consequence of my eating or drinking may cause my brother to stumble, or may cause an unbeliever not to hear the gospel, and in those situations, I might decide I won't eat. Or, oppositely, I might, I, there might be a situation in which I decide I will eat, something I don't really like to eat, <laughs> in order that the, that the gospel might move forward. So the gospel becomes our utility, right? We want the gospel to succeed. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, Paul says, right? Okay. So, so what is he saying? That's, that's a very important utilitarian end for me. And some of the things that I do, I do strictly be, because it's going to either promote or take away from the, the success of the gospel. And so there's utility that is ongoing in the scripture. But I think most of us, when we, when we look at an issue such as premarital sex in this particular instance, we really would like to have a Bible verse or a couple of Bible verses even, in order to sort of round it out. So rather than just having utility, or just having natural law, we actually have something very specific that God has given to us propositionally in the Bible. And that is, and that is our gold standard, that's our, our ideal. Sometimes we don't have that, but in this case I think we do. Okay? I think the Bible very specifically and precisely speaks to the question of premarital sex. And, and, and honestly, you know, we, starting in on this, on this series, you, um, you probably haven't had in your back of your mind, we're going to get after the big ones, okay? Well, this is the big one. You've, you've got a lot more kids, young men, young women, who are engaging in this sin than most of the other sins that you're going to be talking about in this, right? So this is the big one. Right? This is a big issue that we need to talk about. And so let's, let's see if we can't uh, do that this morning and see if we can't find some passages that actually uh, give us some instruction on how we can move forward with this. I'm going to start with the Mosaic Laws. You can see here in your handout, uh, premarital sex and the Mosaic Law. We have two key passages in the law uh, that help us here uh, to understand what's going on. Now, the fact that the New Testament describes believers as not being under the Mosaic law on several occasions here makes it common for us to overlook what we find in the Mosaic law uh, in terms of its, its uh, practicality or its, or its application in the present day. And as a, as a dispensationalist, I'm, I'm very uh, keen on this sentiment. But here's the thing, unless one opts for some sort of evolving divine ethic, God is immutable. And so much of what we see in the scripture is a reflection of the immutable law of God that derives from his immutable character and decree. And unless, you know, obviously there's some Old Testament laws uh, that, that uh, perpetuate some sort of theological and cultural utility that no longer exists today. But in the absence of these, this kind of clear evidence, we should probably give serious attention to the fact that many of the Mosaic restrictions are historical windows into God's fixed, 
transcendent standard of righteousness. And so I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to begin here. And I want to start here with Exodus 22, 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refer, refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Now, this verse here actually appear, these two verses appear sort of as, as a hinge in this chapter here. The first half of the chapter deals almost entirely with property rights, okay? So, and, and if these verses are the tail end of that, then we are talking about a question of children as property, daughters as property, and perhaps you can say that, okay, we don't do that anymore, and so therefore this law has absolutely nothing to do with us. On the other hand, uh, we find that the, the next half of the chapter deals with a lot of detached social responsibilities, including several of a sexual nature that have a broader function and uh, would be more than favorable to uh, contemporary social ethics. Now, I'm going to suggest that there probably is more to tie this in with the previous half of the, the first half of the chapter than the second. But at the same time, I think there are elements here uh, that make it valuable for us. So it is talking about uh, stolen, something that is stolen uh, from the father. You know, the, so the father is deprived of the bride price, which is part of, part of their economy, right? Okay. But we find in these verses here that the person who steals the virginity of a young woman without paying for it has not only stolen from dad, but has also stolen from the young lady, from her security, from her stability, and has not paid her for it. So he's used her merchandise without reciprocating this guarantee of perpetual provision. That's how their society worked. You, you were under your father, you were in your father's household until you were purchased out of it by a husband who agrees then to take care of this woman for the rest of her life by taking this girl who is in her father's household and using her, taking away her virginity, he leaves this girl very vulnerable, okay? And so some of the, some of the issues we were talking about earlier uh, come, come into play, okay? So I think that's, that's what's going on here. So unless the father in, intervenes, the perpetrator is obliged to marry the girl as the most obvious way of paying for what he has stolen. Stolen from dad and stolen from her. And so these verses are not so much a question merely of economics in a patriarchal society, but also personal and sexual ethics. So let's look then at the details of the verses to make sure that we are identifying this correctly as premarital sex. First, we find that the, uh, the perpetrator has seduced a virgin. So this is a virgin who has never had sexual relationships, so this is premarital, but it is not rape, and it's not prostitution. The perpetrator, the man in this case, has seduced 
the virgin. He has enticed her, persuaded her, convinced her. So it tells us that we're not dealing with rape. Rape is a capital crime in the Old Testament. Nor is it prostitution, okay? Because it's not as though she was seducing him. He seduced her. So it's not rape. It's not prostitution. And it, and, and it turns out here that this is a person who has not been betrothed, okay? So here's a person who has not yet been connected with another man. Uh, now, it may be tempted that, to tempting to suggest that this language is used to make an exception for intercourse between a man and his fiancée during his betrothal period. I don't think that's the period at all. Uh, instead, the commentators unanimously agree that this qualification is here to distinguish it from consenting adultery, which is a capital crime. Uh, at the way things operated in, the, in Old Testament Israel, once you were betrothed, it was almost as though you were pre-married. And to break off the betrothal actually amounted to something close to adultery. So I think what Moses is doing here and what God ultimately is doing here is making sure we know that it's not prostitution, it's not rape, and it's not adultery, okay? This is someone who is a virgin, who is about to be married here, is not yet married, and engages in premarital sex. Now, the rest of the the verse makes clear that the seduction and the consequent sin are not simply an alternative path to marriage, but a criminal diversion for which marriage offers a measure of rectitude, okay? So it is wrong to engage in premarital sex, and if one does, one must be punished, okay? The man has done something wrong, not against property, but against persons. And the only way he can make this right in this case is by restitution, And also, unless the father intervenes and says no, by a lifelong personal commitment. Now, this is not an instance of capital punishment, but it is punishment. The man is forced and obliged then to marry this woman and take care of her perpetually as a result of his sin against her. So that's the first passage here. Any questions up, up till this point? A little bit of a breather. Yes, ma'am. Um, it's his sin against the father and against her, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really talk about anything that does to be mercy. Well, in this case, we have it, most of the Old Testament, as you're aware, uh, generally is directed towards men who are the responsible party in these things. But, <laughs> but and, and, and the more we have our society in which both of those can sort of go both directions, the more it does sort of tilt that direction. But we are, we are a, 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 if I can, a slave to the patriarchal society that we find represented in, in the Old Testament. But I think it does work both ways. But usually it's this direction. Okay? Second passage then is Deuteronomy 20, verses 20 and 21, which is, has a little bit of a twist to it. Okay, so let's read this. If a man takes a wife and accuses her of not being a virgin, that's, that's, I'm, I'm condensing a few lines here from previous verses. So if a man takes a wife and then accuses her of not being a virgin, she lied to me, she's not a virgin, and the charge is true, 
and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found. We won't go into that, but it, uh, we'll, just, we'll just take it at face value for now. She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. Okay, so this time, a second instance here, involves a woman who is engaged in premarital sex with another man, then concealed that secret from a man she agrees to marry. Okay, so there's no doubt in this passage uh, that uh, premarital sex has occurred. The woman is said in the end here to still have co had committed this offense while she is still in her father's house. That is, before any legal transfer of her, of, of, of her person from dad to a husband. But what is a little bit unclear in this passage is the precise reason why this girl's executed. Okay, first passage we looked at, it's, they're, they're, I mean, there's a, if, I, if I may, it's a slap on the wrist, okay? She doesn't get killed. Uh, there, there is some punishment. There is some hardship that's attached to what, what goes on, but she doesn't kill. In this case, this young lady is to be executed, okay? So what's the difference here? What are the compounding factors that makes this a capital offense? Well, for some, the girl's crime was that she deceived her husband-to-be and married him under false pretenses that she was a virgin, so she lied to him, and this is outrageous here. She defrauded her husband, she stole from him, uh, she had disdain from her father, for her father, uh, committing sins while still in her father's house. Uh, so she's completely ruptured Israelite society by committing a breach of law, uh, sacred laws that bind the, uh, bind the community together. Uh, but here, we find here that, that she is not just profane in her father's house, but his, has profaned her father's house. And so probably what is happening here is we have a situation that's something like a child who is recalcitrant, who is stoned. This is not so much anybody, you, you, you've always been troubled by that passage, right? You know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your son is recalcitrant and, uh, and he uh, rises up against you, why then he's to be stoned? Well, I, I don't think we should think in those terms as, as your three-year-old saying no. And okay, sorry, uh, I, I don't think that's the point at all. This is, this is more of a rising up against mom and dad in, and, and even perhaps uh, with, with threats of physical harm. And so, this, this, so, so, so some would look at this passage and say, that's what's happening. She has done what the recalcitrant son does. She has risen up against her father and for this need, reason needs to be stoned. That's possible. There's a second understanding, though, that her crime is simply that she had premarital sex before she left her father's house. And this, this, is, this is the one that has perhaps the greatest textual support. Now, there is no indication here uh, that, that, uh, that the first is true. This is a, an outrageous crime, and that is being promiscuous while she's still in her father's house. And in fact, uh, the, the choice of terms that is used here is, uh, is a term that normally applies to fornication, uh, often as performed uh, by unbetrothed girls under their father's authority. 
Uh, it seems like this is, this is what's there. So the term fornication seems to be uh, usable here rather than adultery. So then, so then why? Well, the answer seems to lie in the fact that by concealing her fornication and entering into a marriage covenant under false pretenses, she became guilty before the fact. She committed adultery before the fact by marrying. Okay? She has... She has so, so, so she's not so much guilty of mere fornication. It was fornication, but she concealed it and then compounded it by marrying someone else, which effectively means that she was committing adultery in advance. Now, adultery in the scriptures is a capital crime, and that would make sense then of the fact that she is, that she is, uh, she is put to death for this. But in any case, I think we, we get the sense that her principal sin, her first sin, was premarital sex. She compounded it further, but the first sin was necessary uh, in order for her to get to this second stage of committing a capital crime. So it is pretty clear in this passage as well uh, that she has committed uh, a crime first uh, by, uh, by premarital sex, and then secondly then uh, by uh, a, a kind of adultery before the fact. Okay, questions on that one? Yes. Yeah, and, and there's a lot that goes into this proof. I mean, there's, there's other passages that talk about the proof, and I, I confess I'm not, I'm not the expert on this to, to, to talk about the medical proof of virginity in, an, in the ancient world. So I'm, I'm not going to try and... I, I'm not, I don't even want to go into that. But, but, but there, it does seem like there are some sort of safeguards in place. But your point is well taken. Uh, any of these laws can be abused. Uh, but... Uh, the fact that they are God's laws doesn't you know, it means that you can't just say, "Oh, because they are prone to abuse, we can discard them." So, yeah, but good point. There's there's a lot of intrigue that goes on then as now. Well, let's migrate to the New Testament then, and uh, specifically to First Corinthians seven. I didn't actually put these out there because I'm pretty much using verses throughout this chapter. So you, you have to turn to this one. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, several things that we need to point out here in 1 Corinthians 7. I want to start here with the first verse uh, because it is a verse that has been terribly abused in this regard, and so I almost have to answer it before we can talk about what the, 
what Paul does say about premarital sex in the rest of the chapter here. So it begins with this statement here. Now for the matters that you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but depending on what translation you have, it reads very differently. Uh, something like, uh, you know, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, okay? And so this verse has been used over the years, you know, the six-inch rule, right? Just you don't touch the woman uh, because if you touch the woman uh, prior to getting married, then you're in big trouble. I, I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point here is it's, it's a euphemistic way of saying you should not have sexual relationships with a woman. Okay, now, having said that, you look and say, okay, is Paul saying then that men and women in their married state should never have sexual relationships? No, because if you look in your, in your text here, those words here are in quotation marks, okay? The idea here is that what, he, what Paul is putting here in the second half of verse 1 is the claim that the Corinthians were making, okay? So, the matter that you wrote me about, in which you made the claim, it is good not for a man to have sexual relationship with a woman, let me give you my answer, okay? So it's, it's not as though he is, it, this is Paul speaking here, but rather he is quoting the Corinthians as they are writing to him. And so the question then, what is Paul's answer? Well, let, let's, let's summarize it here. There's a lot that could be said here, but let me just summarize it. There's a Corinthian faction who is claiming that believing men, whether they're married or unmarried, should take the moral and spiritual high road in avoiding ordinary sexual intercourse, and that believers should instead aspire to be celibate. And Paul disagrees with this point. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on in this chapter. And then he goes on to give specifics. And so he deals with uh, different situations, uh, uh, men uh, who have lost their wives, men who are happily married, men who want to take sort of a breather here so that they can, so they can pursue some sort of a spiritual pursuit, people who are unmarried, people who are demarried, they've, they've lost their wives for one reason or another, and so he goes into all kinds of details in specific situations. Uh, but I think we find uh, pretty clearly here uh, that... Uh, um, Paul is answering here that it is that it is uh, that while these these folks say that it's morally superior to practice abstinence, they're wrong. Still, Paul does give something of a concession to them. In this present crisis, he says in verse twenty-six, perhaps it would be a good idea for you not to make any major life decisions, okay? And so he, he encourages each of the parties to remain as they are in this present crisis, but it seems to have something of a temporary feel to it. So maybe, maybe we could uh, put, a, put, a, put a for instance here. You know, somebody makes plans to get married, and then we find, you know, dad is in the hospital, 
what are we going to do? I'll go forward with marriage. Well, maybe because of this present crisis, we can postpone the wedding, okay? And so that's, that's sort of the feel that we have here. As long as this present crisis is ongoing, it is a good idea not to make major decisions. However, however, he makes some, some key observations here along the way that let us know that that's not an absolute principle. That is good advice for the present time. However, there are, there are exceptions to this. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried, and I think I'm going to actually make the case here that this is the demarried. Okay, so it's not so much people who have not yet been married, but those who were married but are no longer. Uh, whether we're talking widows and widowers, or whether someone has walked away uh, because of an unbiblical divorce. Uh, so to the demarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them for this present time, during this present crisis, to stay unmarried even as I am. But, but, if they can't control themselves, if they can't contain, some of your translations have, they should marry because it is better for them to marry than to burn. Okay, so he gives reasons why it might be a good idea for someone to not engage and not, not get married hastily uh, during a very difficult or ugly time during the life of the church. But this is not a blanket prohibition. In fact, he says, if you can't if, if you are so eager to engage in sexual relationships with this woman, you've moved along in your relationship where this seems inevitable, Paul says what? You've got two choices, Right? Marry or burn. Now, this question of what, what does that mean by burn? Some have suggested, okay, you either get married or you burn in hell. I don't think that's the point. Uh, in fact, most of your translations, if you have the NIV, says you can either marry or perpetually burn with unfulfilled passion. Okay? Those, those are the two options you have. Now, if this present crisis was such that, there's, that, that uh, we're trying to find the easiest solution to this present crisis, if there was a solution that says, well, we can find a way to salve our passions without getting married, Paul would have said so, but he doesn't. What does he say? You've got two choices. You can either marry or you can burn with passions. There's no third way. Okay, so there's, there's, there's the situation. Now, this is, again, this is probably uh, a situation of those who have been demarried or were previously married, so it's not technically at this point then a, an instance here of premarital sex, but, um, uh, but uh, after the fact. The next passage, though, deals specifically with the question of premarital sex. Verse 36. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards a virgin that he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels that he ought to marry, he should do so. He is not sinning. They should get married. Okay, so here's a situation similar to the first one, but in this case, clearly premarital, right? This man has a virgin 
who has not had sexual relations up till this point. It is described here as his virgin, okay, in the text. Uh, if you have an NIV, it might say the, 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 the virgin he is engaged to. That's actually added. Uh, it, it actually says if he is behaving improperly towards his virgin. And so the, the point being that he has made some sort of a commitment to this woman, but he has not yet gotten married. So hence the NIV reads, someone he's been engaged to. It could be something a little bit less than that. You know, he might be as steady. You know, he's, he's, he's become, has an exclusive girlfriend here. Um, but what, what has happened here is, is they're moving along in their relationship and they're moving too fast. And despite the fact that there is a present crisis, which should, should cause us to slow down our major life decisions, if you get to this point, what does Paul say? Okay, if you get to this point where you are burning with passion towards this girl and you are afraid that you are not going to act correctly and act rightly towards her, act honorably towards her, if your passions are too strong, then get married. You're not sinning. Get married. Okay, because again, those are the only two choices. The only two choices that this young man and this young woman have are either to marry or burn with unfulfilled passions. Those are the only two choices you had. And if you are really concerned that you're going to sin, then get married, because that's the only honorable thing to do at this point. Okay? So again, we have a passage here that very clearly states here that if two young, usually young, men and a man and a woman uh, are are concerned uh, that they are going to engage in, in sexual intercourse and uh, they are, are ready to make commitments uh, for a lifetime of, of, of companionship, then they should, they should, they should accelerate that. They should, they should hasten that uh, to make sure that they do not engage in sin. So we've got three passages here uh, that I think deal specifically uh, with the problem in view. Okay, so, um, but what, what, a, what, emerges clearly and significantly for all, from all of these passages is that there are only two options for an unmarried man and his virgin. There are only two right, op, only one, there are only two right options. One is to get married and fulfill your passions, or two, don't get married and don't fulfill your passions. Those are the only two options uh, that Paul offers here in this. Okay? So, if we can summarize here, then we'll, I'll open it up for maybe four or five minutes of questions here. What are the conclusions that we come away with? Number one, premarital sex is a sin. I, I, I hope, that, hope that has emerged here, that premarital sex is a sin. Secondly, it's a serious sin. Okay? There's, there's punishment attached to it, and it involves lifelong commitments and, and, and so, the, so it's, a, it's a serious sin with serious consequences. And we're all familiar with some of those. I, I think this is where utility comes in, into play, right? If, in fact, you engage in premarital sex and there's an unwanted pregnancy, you've, you've, you've compounded the problem and made it very serious, right? You, you've, 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 you've created a, 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 a blight on your society that... Is, is going to cause trouble for that young lady and the child for the rest of their lives, 
Okay, so there's utility in view here, but that's not the reason. That is not the only reason why we should not engage in premarital sex. We don't engage in premarital sex because God says we shouldn't. There are consequences for the girl, for the kid, for society in large, but the reason that we should not engage in premarital sex is because God says we shouldn't, and he has good reasons for doing so. And so the biblical case against premarital sex is not abstract or contrived as some way to keep your children in line, but it's plain and obvious, and I think a very clearly biblical argument uh, may be made against it. Questions, thoughts? Okay. Uh, question, yeah, one more question. No, I, I thought he was raising his hand. He wasn't. It's hard to say. Uh, apparently, there's some sort of uh, persecution that's ongoing uh, that is that has sort of destabilized the life of the church. Um, it's, I can't really go much beyond that. It, it, could we have a similar crisis today? Maybe. I, and that's why I tried to raise up that, that issue. You know, dad's in the hospital. Maybe we should postpone the wedding. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and he, does, he does, you know, I didn't t touch on it, but there may be a season of time where, by, where a specific ministry, maybe an overseas mission, you know, you want to go overseas for a month and your wife stays home. Obviously, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, a period of celibacy <laughs> that, got, that Paul is prescribing here. So there, there may be occasions for temporary celibacy because of the mission because of the crisis, but that does not mean that marriage is now off, right? Yeah, I, I, your point is well taken. Uh, that, and, and of course, that's part of the concern here, uh, that, that apparently these, these objectors are either thinking as you have, uh, you know, that, as you've suggested here, that uh, it's, it's wrong uh, because, of, because Jesus is coming again, or perhaps uh, they're buying into sort of some platonic or Gnostic kind of thinking that anything material is bad. We find that that's sort of laced in the early church. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. Now, now, now maybe for, because of the present crisis, you might pause, put a pause on certain life aspects. But I, I, I think the fact that he uses that kind of language means that the pause is going to come off sometime, okay? And, and normal life is going to resume.
Yes, ma'am. No. <laughs> no, I, I, it, it seems to me that what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is something that is set up for civil society. That God is establishing here how civil society is supposed to look like. I think what we talked about, Genesis 4, is a continuation of that. This is what civil society is supposed to look like. Chapter 6 uh, and, 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 and 9, we actually get instructions on how governments are supposed to look. And these are not governments, these are not Christian governments. These are, these are civil governments, uh, often peopled by unbelievers, and there are expectations that God has for those in order to operate smoothly. Now, obviously they're not Christians, uh, and so they're, they're I, I don't want to say it's a natural law kind of a thing, because it's in the Bible, right? It's telling us exactly how civil society is supposed to unfold. But I think these, all of these apply not only to believers, but also to everyone in civil society. So believers and unbelievers alike. Okay? Okay, well, if you want to read more, there's that pamphlet you can pick up. I think it's pretty cheap. And uh, you, can, you can read further, and I'd be happy to field any questions if you, if you want to drop me a line sometime. But let's go ahead and close in prayer and we'll be on our way. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us. Uh, we thank you for uh, what you have told us in your word about, about uh, your, your redemptive grace and also the, uh, the graces whereby you maintain a, a world uh, that is stable. Lord, I ask that we might contribute uh, to both. In your name we pray, amen.